The book of Jonah is the earliest of the minor prophets, and it was written in the mid-700s B.C., while Jeroboam II was the king of the northern tribes in Israel. Uh, what we learned about Jeroboam last week is simply that he was a man who was not after God's own heart. Uh, it was an interesting time in Israel's history because while the king and the leadership uh, was not following the Lord at all and spiritually the nation was in decline, it was a time of tremendous prosperity and the nation was really expanding at the same time. As a matter of fact, their borders and their boundaries in Israel at that time were as big as they were under King Solomon. And so the nation was really prospering even though spiritually they were doing terrible. Jonah was a unique figure. We don't know a whole lot about his background or how old he was or anything else. But what we do know about him is that he was the only prophet in the Old Testament who was called to go speak to a Gentile nation. In other words, his entire career, which was very brief, was meant to speak God's word to a Gentile people. The last thing I want to say about Jonah was he was a pretty cranky guy. Uh, he, he, he starts off poor and he ends worse, uh, to be really frank with you. God gave him one message to deliver to a people in a city called Nineveh. Nineveh at the time was the capital of Assyria. Nineveh was a terribly evil place. It was an evil place that were historic enemies of the people of God in Israel and in Judah. I'll tell you a little bit more about their crimes against those people in a few minutes. And God's word to them was, God's going to judge you. Which you would have thought would have been a message that Jonah would have been happy to deliver. Really and truly. We'll find out why he was not happy to deliver that message. A little later on this morning, and as the book unfolds, it's really a tremendous, interesting story. Why wouldn't you want to deliver that message? So with that being said, let me just pray real quick, and then we'll turn to the text. Father, I really want to be clear about the message of Jonah. I really want to be clear because it's so important, it's so critical that we understand it. It's so pertinent and it's so germane and it, and it walks into our lives in unusual ways. And so I pray that you would give me great clarity and great truth as I speak and, and that you would allow these friends uh, to hear your word articulated and that we would take it to heart. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The name Yom Kippur. Uh, I know it falls off your lips all the time. Yom, Yom Kippur is a day in the Israeli calendar that is the most important day of the year and the holiest day of the year in the lives of Israelites and Jews. It's the 
the Day of Atonement. And it, it is a day that is very somber. If you were in Israel on Yom Kippur, it, it's not a loud, boisterous day. It's a day when people are, are doing a lot of reflecting and a lot of thinking about repentance and sin and things along those lines. In the holy days of Israel, they have a liturgy. And in their liturgy, parts of what we call the Old Testament, they call the Hebrew Bible, are read. Different sections of the Old Testament on different holidays. On Yom Kippur, the biggest day of the year in Israel, guess what book is read? The book of Jonah. Isn't that funny? Because I bet most of us in this room are waiting to hear what kind of fish Dave thinks swallowed Jonah. But on the biggest and holiest and most somber day in Israel's history, they read the book of Jonah. And this is why they read it. Because basically when these Israelites read Jonah, they, they think this, if Nineveh, this Gentile historic evil city can repent of their sin. How much more will God allow Israelites to repent? And, and they see it as a book of repentance and they marvel at the fact that God called a prophet to go to a city so evil and so historically an enemy of their people, and those people repented. If those people repented, how much more grace is God going to show us on the Day of Atonement? Changes the light of Jonah, doesn't it? Tremendously, and all of a sudden the fish becomes a whole lot less important. When throughout generations and centuries, these people Read the book of Jonah on the Day of Atonement. You see, the Ninevites, the capital city of Assyria, when Assyria did conquer the northern tribes and then drift down into Judah, and I have uh, pictures of stone pictographs from the Assyrian period that we're talking about here. Um, when, when they came down and conquered those people, they didn't just take them into exile. They did a lot of things, and I'm not trying to be graphic, and I'm not trying to be uh, funny, but they would put uh, uh, wood posts in the ground that were about eight feet tall and sharpened at the point, and they would impale the men on these stakes outside the city. And they would take leaders and uh, tie them by the hands and the feet and skin them alive and gut them in front of their families and fillet them. And they did it by the thousands. And they were so proud of it that they actually put them into their stone carvings, images of these kinds of things. And so the people in 2023 that will read Jonah on Yom Kippur knew what these Ninevites were like. And so they said, if God can cause them to repent, how much more could he 
cause us to repent. I could go on and on about the atrocities, but I, I don't want to do that. And if you want to see pictures of those stone images, I have them on my computer for you if you're, you're interested. They're obviously in stone, so they're not quite as graphic as they would be on film. But the point is they celebrated this. That's the kind of city that Nineveh was. Now, what I'm going to do for us this morning is I'm going to read chapter 1 of Jonah. And in chapter 1, you are going to get the story you got in Sunday school. And it's probably as far as you got in Sunday school. I mean, to be really truthful. But there are two things that I want you to listen for as I read this. It's only 17 verses. Take me two and a half minutes to read it to you. I want you to... Listen to what's going through the mind of Jonah. We're not doing a character study of him, but but I want you to hear what's going through Jonah's mind. And, And the second thing that I want you to listen for is what is going through the mind of the sailors who are on the boat, who are taking Jonah away from his assigned duty, okay? Two questions in mind. Let me just read this very familiar to most of us story of Jonah, and we'll get the rest of it in weeks to come. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And so he paid the fare and went down into the boat to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. And then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was on the ship into the sea to lighten it from for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had laid down and was fast asleep. And so the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account the evil has come upon us. And so they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. And then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where did you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, This is, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And then they said to him, What shall we do to you? that the sea may quiet down for us. For the sea grew more and more temptuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you. 
For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more temptuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its ragings. And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. There's the end of the Jonah story in most Sunday school lessons. Let me get the fish out of the way. We have no idea. It, it does say God prepared a fish. It, you know what that means? It means it could have been anything God wanted it to be. He could have created a new kind of fish just for the occasion that was around once. That's Dave's conversation on the fish that swallowed Jonah. Sorry to be so desperately, desperately disappointing. But let's talk about Jonah. The, the key feature that comes out in Jonah is that God came to him with a message to tell the people that I am angry with them and I'm going to bring justice upon them. And Jonah's response to that was to run away from God and say, I'm not going to do what you have asked me to do. Last week we saw on the maps that he went so far or he booked passage on a boat that was going so far as Tarshish, which is in southern Greece, that it wasn't even on the map that we were looking at. He traveled 50 miles to the city of Joppa from where he was born, and his intent was to flee the presence of God. It says so three times in the text that we just read. Twice in verse 3, he wants to run away from the presence of the Lord. It then says it again in verse 10. The sailors repeat it because Jonah had told them, this is what I'm trying to do, is run away from the presence of God. And things went badly to do that. Now, we could stop the sermon right here and say, here's the lesson. No man can run from God. He will be caught. And God will do with him as he will. And I will say, quite frankly, that's a very good lesson. And it's a true lesson. And it is an important lesson. But I don't think it's the main point of the story. But you could put that under heading number one. The interesting thing about Jonah's attitude was that in verse 9, he claimed to have a fear of the Lord. I fear the Lord of Israel. I fear him, and yet I am trying to run away from him. I will not do what he has asked me to do, which is to give your message to a pagan people. 
which really begs the question, and I raised this question last week, and it is a question that we will wrestle with throughout our study of Jonah. Why was Jonah so bent against giving the message of God's judgment to this pagan people? A couple of options, and I think all of the options are partially true. Number one, Jonah didn't like Gentiles. And, and obviously, Nineveh was a Gentile people. Mind you, he got on a boat that was sailed by all Gentiles, away from the people that he was supposed to go speak to, but, but maybe he didn't like Gentiles. As I said at the outset, I'm surprised that he didn't like the message of judgment that he was to give to these Gentile people. Because that would have been one that if I didn't like them, I would have relished giving them. Ha! Time is short. God is coming. I mean, who doesn't like that message? We explored in part last week, and I think this is a very big part of it, that and we saw this on the chart, that, that prior to Jonah's being called to go to Nineveh, the Assyrians had come down very close to where Jonah was from and had conquered the people of Damascus. And he had seen or known about through history their atrocities prior to this. And, and he didn't want to have anything to do with a nation who was so hostile to other people. And so there is a possibility that he had fear for his own life. But I will give you what I believe to be the real quintessential answer. And this will prove out in two weeks' time as we look in the text. Jonah knew that his message was a message of judgment. But he also knew that the God that he served was a merciful God. And he knew that there was the potential for these people, when hearing God's word, they might repent. Now, God didn't tell Jonah they might repent. But he knew his God well enough to know that if God's word was spoken to anyone, there is the potential for them to repent. And Jonah couldn't stand the idea that these evil people who were in his mind his sworn enemies, he couldn't stand the idea of these people repenting. And so he didn't want to take the chance of delivering God's word to these people on the off chance that they might repent. He is not a poster child for missionaries. I'm being really serious. He hated these people so much that he would defy his own God and run in the opposite direction not to deliver the message. Now that, that's, that's not, I don't like you very much. That's a deep-seated hatred. And so he runs three times, it mentions, from the presence of the Lord. But you see, 
Here's the other thing, and this is a much larger backdrop for the book of Jonah. God had made promises, and all of us in this room and everybody in Jonah's day, when asked, does God keep his promises, would say, yes. We know one thing, God keeps his promises. And the big promise that God had made to the nation through Abraham was, you are going to be a great nation, you're going to be very numerous, and among other things, through you all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And what's fascinating is, God never uses man-made situations to accomplish his purposes through the nation of Israel. The ultimate blessing that came through Israel is obviously the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life on a cross, rose again on the third day so that nice Gentile pagans like us can be grafted in. He doesn't need Jonah. But he will fulfill his promises regardless. So we have example number one after we turn from the attitude of Jonah and look at these sailors. Now, as I've already mentioned, these sailors are all pagans. They're not Israelite. They're not Jewish. Those guys were not involved in intercoastal trade during the period in the mid-700s B.C. And I want to describe the boat on which Jonah was on. And, and I know this because archaeology, and they've raised a number of sunken ships out of the Mediterranean from this period of time, and they got a pretty good idea what these boats look like, okay? So I'm not going to say anything about the fish, but I'll tell you about the boat. Okay, I know it bums you out. Okay, the boat is probably about 75 feet long and about 20 feet wide at the beam, Okay, so from me to my boy Hawk back there, that's the 20 feet. And let's say 75 feet is the length of this thing. Now, by modern standards, not a very big boat. But by ancient standards, a very big boat. It would have had one mast and one sail. And it would have had along its, uh, along its sides uh, places for oars. And they would have used the oars less for propulsion than they would have used it to come into port and that kind of thing. It would have had a rudder at the, what's aft end? Is that, yeah, yeah, somebody that knows something about boats, the butt end of the boat, okay? There would have been a rudder, all right? And, and the boat would have been for commercial uh, uh, purposes, and on it, it would have had a crew of 20 or less. Uh, the cargo would have been stored below deck, and in the backside of the boat would have been the sleeping quarters below deck for the crew and one or two passengers who had paid to be on the boat. Okay? So you got a picture of this, of this boat. This is what Jonah had gotten on, and a boat like this would have carried between 100 and 500 tons of cargo. Okay, yeah, I know, a lot more than I would have thought. I wouldn't have thought that would have been all that safe. But you can see why they were throwing cargo overboard when the great storm developed. Okay? So now you've got a picture of the boat. You know how many crew members are on there. They're all pagans. Jonah's in there. And what happens when the big storm hits? 
Jonah is down below in the sleeping quarters and he's sound asleep in the middle of a raging storm. Can anybody else think of when that happened? Okay. Lord Jesus with the disciples on a fishing boat crossing the sea. He's sound asleep in a raging storm and he gets woken up by the disciples saying, don't you fear for your life. And that is a parallel. That is a consideration. The major considerable difference is that Jonah was doing what God told him not to do. He was running away from delivering God's message. Jesus was on his way to deliver God's message. Now what do these seasoned veterans of the sea do? They they cry out to their gods. Look at verse 5 again. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his god. This is how afraid that they are. So, so whatever God they believed in, they started praying. And the gods were all over the map. They were from different countries, 18, 20 of them, and they're crying out, and they are terrified, and they are wondering what in the world is going on. So real, genuine fear. This is a group of men who have a God consciousness. When fear arises, you, you pray, you cry out. Then they, they wake up Jonah, verse 6. The captain comes to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? He doesn't say, get up and help us with the cargo. What does he say? Get up and cry out to your God. This is a desperate situation. Everybody should be praying to his God. That's why I want you awake. I don't need help throwing stuff overboard. And then there's the casting lots situation and everything falls on Jonah. And they ask him that series of questions. Where do you come from? What's your occupation? Why are we in such a mess? And Jonah answers in verse 9, I am a Hebrew. Now, now that's an interesting phrase because Jews dress differently than everybody else. And so my suspicion is that Jonah, in his efforts to flee, had disguised himself, you see. He didn't want to be known as a Jew. But anyways, he identifies himself as a Hebrew. I believe in Yahweh, and the word there is different than the word praying to their gods. I believe, I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. I fear the God who is creator over everything and rules everything. And when you say he made the sea and the dry land, what does that mean to a sailor? Well, your whole livelihood comes from the sea, and the sea is about to try to kill you in the midst of the storm. You're claiming that your God created all of this, but beyond that, you see, the God of Israel was a known God. Because everybody back then paid attention to history. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have televisions. They didn't have books. You heard about what happened in the past, and you believed it. And so they knew the story of the Exodus. They had heard how the God of Israel had gone before them and conquered nations and all of these other things. Ah, you're one of those 
You believe that your God is creator of heaven and earth and is ruler over everything and that there's only one God. That's what they're saying. And you're trying to run from him? Yeah, but you see the irony of this? You see the irony of what's going on? You claim to fear this God. You claim that he's creator of everything. You have told us you're running away from him because you don't want to do what he's asked you to do. They can't believe it. And so, verse 10, the men were exceedingly afraid. The situation has just amped up. We have the God of creation involved in our situation, you see. And this guy is running from that God. Now their fear has shifted from the storm to a much greater level. What should we do? Well, throw me overboard, he says, and they try a couple of other things. And then let me look at verse 14. This is talking about the sailors. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. O Lord, this is their prayer. Let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. All of a sudden, what you have is this pagan group of sailors who are no longer praying to little idols that are floating around in the universe anymore. The language shifts here. They're praying to Yahweh, the God of the universe, the creator God. We have done nothing. Spare our lives because we're innocent. An entirely different type of prayer. An entirely different situation. And not only that, you have done as you pleased. We acknowledge that you're in control of everything and that this storm comes from your hand. You're in charge. You're in control. What should we do? And so they pitch Jonah overboard. And, and the sea becomes calm. Now they're really terrified. Now they're afraid. It says so right there, verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. Because the creator God just calmed the sea. To a sailor, there's nothing bigger, period. The sea has been calmed. And Jonah's off, and he's gone, and he's out of the picture. And verse 16 says, The men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to God. They came to faith in Yahweh. And what did Jonah do? Nothing. Nothing. He was walking in disobedience. The only thing he said was, I fear 
the God of Israel who created heaven and earth. And the men acted on it. And they came to faith in Christ. Does God need man to fulfill his promises? I mean, I know it's a simple answer. It's, it's a very simple thing. God doesn't need my cooperation. He will accomplish his purposes in the world with or without me. Now, now ver, chapter 2, we're going to see um, some faith displayed in Jonah. And in chapter 3, we're going to see uh, what looks like obedience in Jonah. And then chapter 4, everything goes south again for Jonah. It's just this bizarre book. It's a bizarre book. Because the Ninevites repent, and Jonah is begrudging the whole thing, and he hates it. God doesn't need Jonah to accomplish his purposes. He will accomplish his promises regardless of man. And here we have a beautiful picture of a bunch of pagan sailors, 18 or 20 of them, coming to faith to the true God of Israel because a man disobeyed the God of Israel. What an extraordinary thing. What I'm not saying, and I'm closing here, is that we should do nothing because God doesn't need us. We are called to be involved. We are called to be his mouthpiece for his word. We are told to do that. We can obey or we can disobey. Jonah paid a price for his disobedience as as. We might as well, not necessarily getting swallowed by a fish. But, but we are not indispensable at the same point of the exercise. I'm not indispensable. God doesn't need me to proclaim his word. He's asked me to, but he doesn't need me. I mean, that's, that's an important reality. God will accomplish his purposes in the world without mankind but I wonder for me and perhaps you can think this through are there occasions I I may not run away I may not get on a ship that takes me 2,000 miles from home just so I don't have to do what God doesn't ask doesn't ask me to do but but do I ignore what God has asked me to do because I don't like or hate or don't think a people is worth it? I may like the message of judgment, but I can't see that person repenting. And my doing nothing is equivalent to running away. It is worth considering for us. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And, and there are so many miracles here. Um, a man sleeping during a storm, a storm in the first place, a great fish that swallows a man, 
and men who repent and come to faith. That, that it, it seems like fiction, but it is real. But the reality is, is that you are calling people to yourself in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And every time you draw one to yourself, it is as miraculous. And while you do not need us for this endeavor, you have called us to be involved. May we be actively with you rather than passively against you. To the glory of Christ. Amen.